Hello and welcome to another episode of the Something Rotten Podcast. This is, I think, what everything has been leading up to. Uh, my name is Jacob Geller, I'm joined as always by Blake Hester, and we have finished the video game Metal Gear Solid 2. Jacob. Blake? It brings me no joy in reporting that on the day after finishing Metal Gear Solid 2, a momentous occasion marking the end of another something rotten season my little puppy's sick she don't feel so good it's it's so unfortunate Rake's <laughs> sick isn't that sad that's very sad that, that is very yeah, sad she gotta go to the vet it's very sad i'm trying to think of some kind of joke about like why, ai why? or whatever but mostly i'm just sorry that reagan's sick why the fuck would you joke about my sick dog you sick man hey i i i would never even dream of doing so um i uh I, I truly, I think it's like, we we felt like there was this giant thing approaching us. Because we both knew that, like, the end of Metal Gear Solid 2 is something. And we both had some idea of it. And then over the past couple weeks, especially last week with Thor, we kept kind of guessing at things. And they were like, you are going to have a lot to talk about next week. Uh, and we're finally here, and we finally do have a lot to talk about. And who better to join us than Harper J, uh, currently of Double Fine, formerly a video games writer that I respect very much, wrote for Kotaku, wrote for uh, many other places, as uh, as sometimes happens, and has written a book on Metal Gear, in this case, uh, Metal Gear Rising Revengeance, but uh, has done a lot of long-form pieces on Metal Gear Solid as well. Harper, thank you so much for coming on the pod. Hello. Thank you for having me. Um, am I given to understand by everything you're saying that this is your first time playing Metal Gear Solid 2? This is this is both of our first times playing both Metal Gear Solid 1 and 2. That's fascinating. Uh, well, I'd played the Zone of the Enders demo about 40 times I mean, that, Yeah, that's like... A huge portion of the game right there, the most important portion of the so game. So technically, it was my first time playing 1.90 per... This joke's not going anywhere, let's just move on. It's <laughs> alright. That's kind of cool. I, I mean, I've had a couple friends this year who've also picked up... I don't know what it is about this year. Maybe it's just uh, Kojima season, but I've had some friends who've also played through it, and I've watched them play through, and no one guesses it. Nobody's prepared for it. Um, partially because it's both uh, a cool, prescient thing, and also just no one knows what... Like, this game wants to say a bunch of things, and then sometimes you're like, ah, you read, you read some articles, you read, like, a little bit of The Selfish Gene, and, and that's kind of the, the end of it. But it's fun. Yeah, I mean, and it's like, it's almost, despite the past 20 years' best efforts to spoil it for me... It just feels kind of impossible. You know, it's like, I had heard, okay, the colonel's an AI. I had heard, okay, you fight the former president. Like, there were, I had been given many pieces of what happens at the end of this game. But, like, even even if someone just wrote out, like, here are literally all the things that happen, I don't think they would be able to actually spoil, like, the experience of having it happen because it is just like so many things crashing into each other at once in a way that kind of can't be communicated uh other than playing it listen some of those things you mentioned colonel being an ai the uh the battle with solidus the reason you know about those is that's mimesis baby those are the those are the strongest memes of, of metal gear the Solid dna too. of the soul yeah we've been kind of playing this in chunks we've been playing it like a book club and so 
strictly speaking, this episode is going to go from um, uh, basically EE's uh, insertion of the virus and death uh, to the end of the game. But I do want to kind of talk about it as a project. I want to, you know, do do the whole thing. Here is my question for Blake Hester. You, you, I think, have done your best to really engage in good faith with this game that you do have not generally enjoyed playing. Do you still feel that way? Did you like the ending, or are you just a very smart guy who comes to this podcast, you know, in good heart and is ready to engage with it? Or were you like the slams? Well, I am a very smart guy who comes to this podcast every week in good faith with no little tricks up my sleeve. And it is true that uh, the middle chunk of this game really just did little for me. But then the final two hours, brother, Kojima pulled out that big old narrative gun he wielded like fortune, and he said, time to do some good writing. And my God, the I was all in. Uh, yeah, no, I mean, when this game like kind of turns into, I don't know, a technophobic horror game for a little while, uh, I was all in. I was like, this is this is my shit. I am super engaged with everything this is trying to do uh, narratively and thematically. And aside from the final boss fight, which I found mechanically quite poor, um, I thought the ending of this game was stellar. And uh, I didn't particularly like the game. That's fine. You know, that's just the, the risky take going into a games blind like this. But I think the final two hours were... Um, just knocked it out of the park. Like, I was losing my mind last night playing through this, having a ball. Can I ask a question? What's up? Uh, because I, I, I tried to go into this conversation kind of blind to your experiences or feelings. Were you uh, were you immediately on board with Raiden, Blake? Or were you like, I don't know quite what's happening here? Oh, I mean, I, I knew the... I had long known the switch to Raiden. Yeah. So, like... I don't, I don't know, it's not a great answer, but, like, I just knew to expect it, so when it happened, I was like, okay, here's the moment, you know? Um, okay, yeah. I found Raiden an interesting character. I, I found him and Rose's relationship to be very compelling. Um, up front, I am very much not a fan of Kojima's uh, style of writing when it comes to, like, character work and dialogue. Um, so a lot of that, you know, was very eye-rolly for me just because i don't particularly like the way he writes his dialogue do you remember what day it is tomorrow do you remember what day it is tomorrow? <laughs> yeah, yeah so <laughs> you, you, you get where i'm coming from uh but i do think like i enjoy writing at in terms of his place in what the game is trying to say and i do like that you know that switch happens especially by the end when shit goes haywire yeah i think it's like it is it is weird to have a game that is just so much defined by its ending but like the whole the whole ryan thing i feel like it just it pays out like a slot machine because you could not do this ending with solid snake you know there's no there's no version of the monologue that Campbell and Rose could give to Snake that would kind of hit as hard as it does being delivered to Raiden, and that is because of the whole, like, Raiden experience through the whole game. And so, I, I again, I also knew, it's like, I knew you switched to Raiden, I knew that people didn't like it, I think I came in more ready to 
engage with the weird thing the game was doing rather than uh, having a blast with the Solid Snake power fantasy. But it's hard for me to imagine getting to the end of this game and still being mad that they made you be Raiden because it's just like that's when it's hitting you in the face with the idea that it was the whole point that you were riding. Harper, I'll be interested to hear your experience playing this the first time. But Jacob, I think for our sake, like having that step removed just by knowing the switch was going to happen and just being willing to like engage with it. um, I think the, the antagonism of the creator in this game and making fun of like you wanting the kind of power fantasy, it made it, easier to engage with that and like have that step removed to be like okay what is he saying about the people who would get mad because it seems like a lot of this game is made in preparation of frustrated players yeah and not having to worry about that is like you get to be kind of a passive observer of what kojima was saying because it's like well i'm not really the target audience here harper did you when did you play this game originally did you know about the switch or oh boy um no i didn't know about it right so like i played this when it came out and that means i was like 10 or 11 which means i'm old now but at the time i was a i was a youngin and you know my experience with metal gear is kind of a case study i think in a lot of the american audiences uh experience with metal gear in the sense that i first played metal gear solid on a demo disc for playstation magazine and that i think that was literally just like getting into shadow moses like that whole segment it's just i think um the dock and the heliport to the best of my recollection it's also um it's a section that uh do you do you know any i shouldn't say anything about metal gear solid 4 no i can't oh i i've look metal gear solid 4 was the first metal gear solid game that i played so i started with that yeah (laughs) so there's a whole point in that game where they kind of like that whole segment is in it again like quite literally and so that's interesting to me, and I don't know if it's particularly intentional on Kojima's part, right? A thing, I want to be careful in conversations that we have today, or like broadly speaking, uh, about Metal Gear, where I think people um, both rightly and wrongly uh, attribute a lot of intentionality to Kojima, uh, because sometimes he's very clearly doing things deliberately. But sometimes, uh, and I say this as somebody who has devoted an, a lot of time writing about his works sometimes i think he's just kind of a fool who bumbles into things um so that's part of the truth too um but for me uh to go back to the the question played the demo disc and then uh, played the first metal gear solid that was a big deal like there were small things about that game looking back now that i remember reading in reviews people were like oh yeah there's like heartbeats and the controller vibrates like the heartbeat right like stuff that we would take for granted nowadays we have you know, resistive haptic feedback on our PlayStation controllers or whatever. It's small stuff like that that really starts to paint the image of, oh, this is doing something. It's both, It's first off, it's that. Oh, this is doing something with the medium, which is interesting, which is, it calls attention to itself constantly, which is a huge, important thing for Metal Gear Solid 2. And then also, um, we're still in that area of time where it's like, this is political, man. That's for adults, man. Oh my gosh, games are doing it. But, you know, as a 10 or 11-year-old, I just thought it was fun to play. Uh, some of the points weren't entirely lost on me, but how much can I really comment? You know, how how much commentary on the American experience, on the Imperial Project, can I really respond to when I... Um, 
I'm barely beginning to develop a true formative idea of myself. I can't really, but I used to play this game like over weekends, like all the time, right? I can quote this script with frightening accuracy. Um, and that's both a good thing and a terrible it's, thing. It's funny that you say that about uh, playing as a kid, because one of the thoughts that I had um, while playing this, and something that I actually don't think I've said on the pod, is that I I bought, like, I had a PS2, and I bought this game, and I played through the tanker section when I was probably 13, 14 years old, and just something else caught my attention, and I didn't, I didn't ever finish it. I didn't get past the end of the tanker until now. And I am retroactively so mad at myself because I I loved this game. I loved the ending, playing it now. I think if I played this when I was 14 years old, it would have defined my personality in a way where maybe it's good that it didn't because I would have been wow. even more annoying. Bad news about like a huge portion of the gamer audience and a huge portion of the internet audience and like tons of dirtbag leftist types like... They did let this game define a huge portion of their <laughs> right. personality, and for some of them, they've never let go. Yeah, and I, you know, so obviously it is like looking at alternate futures is always a little bit scary. And like, I'm very, I'm very happy with my life now, and so I probably wouldn't change it. But in in the same way as uh, recently, I watched, um, I watched Danny Boyle's film Sunshine, and I really loved Sunshine. And I also thought if I saw this at 14 years old, it would have been one of my favorite movies ever. And and just like, I really appreciated what was going on here. And I think it would have, at kind of the dawning of my political consciousness, it would have hit me a hundred times harder. And maybe it's good that it didn't because I don't actually want my entire ideology uh, defined by Kojima kind of repeating the selfish gene. I like the alternate timeline where you played this game when you were 14 years old and became a dirtbag left podcaster. I think that would have been really funny. <laughs> to be clear, I don't want to, I mean, I say that a little derisively, but you can certainly trace a path from this game to obviously something like blowback pod or something like noah colwin and those people in the sense that um you know i, I have that to they say, named all the recent episodes yes, of yeah. the season they, I mean, after they episodes that are just called snake eater yeah. but i think in the sense too that they, presumably they're they're like around our age as well i don't know how old those groups are but it's definitely this case of for some people it is a piece of slightly more um anti-imperialist anti-american um media which you know this game releases in what 2001 it like it like it releases oh, right yeah, after yeah. right after right 9 after september 11th they have to change portions of the ending of this game they remove stuff from this game right originally the statue of liberty was going to get displaced and moved and a bunch of weird stuff like cloverfield um yeah 100 <laughs> percent a little bit and so kojima predicted cloverfield yeah so having that sort of game uh, presented to you at at a, a very impressionable age during a yeah. really, uh, charged moment in uh, you know American history in regards to um, kind of the American psyche is kind of interesting, right? And and you do see that ripple effect out in pop culture um, now that we have people who are reaching the point of being creative. I I don't exactly know where I'm going with this, but I really had just like a weird moment yesterday. Um, and I'm sorry, I feel like I've spent this season being kind of a Kojima hater, which is ironic considering how much of a defender of Death Stranding I am. Uh, 
but I, I don't think you have. I think I think you've honestly given him a okay. lot of kudos for someone who's not sure. getting along with these games. Uh, I I think Harper, what you're saying is so valuable to hear for me because this this game strikes me as a great gateway game into like bigger ideas. You know, I think like Jacob, you were saying if you played this when you were 14, like it would have blown your mind. Um, I I finished this game for the first time and saw Stalker for the first time in the same day, which are really interesting pieces of media to experience in, uh, you know, within five hours of each other. Um, And I think where I, I kind of push back on this game is like the pedestal it's kind of put upon as this genius piece of like prescient or future predicting media more so just like an interesting gateway and an interesting example of political narratives and games does this make sense like i i hate the way it's kind of always projected as this like or the way it's kind of held up as maybe smarter than it is where i coming to it for the first time at nearly 30 uh i see it as like wow this is a really cool example of a game trying to take the medium more seriously beyond just like interesting or quirky mechanics but it doesn't strike me as like you know a stalker was a revelatory moment for me metal gear solid 2 was not i think it's um yeah i think there are a couple ways that we can come at this uh one of the really enjoyable things about finishing this game is there is so much long form good writing about metal gear solid 2 in the way that does not often exist about games that release now or if they do they're kind of on youtube videos or other places that are kind of harder to research and track down but i've been reading a lot of people's pieces about this and i think what the place that i've come to and i harper i want to know if you agree with this is like the stuff that it has to say about the american government is interesting political writing that is not you know radically more forward thinking than a lot of other writing at the time what it is doing with itself as a game remains like its commentary on games i think is fundamentally more interesting and more novel than its commentary on american yes i fully agree yeah 100 (laughs) percent um so i'll say a couple things which is um to start us off i'll say something which sounds unflattering but it has stayed um kind of like a splinter in my mind ever since I've heard it. I believe this was my friend, uh, Jackson Tyler, um, of Abnormal Mapping. I think they said something to the effect once of the idea that some of the best stories told in video games are still a thing that you would buy at, like, an airport bookstore. Yes! (laughs) And and I I know that sounds really damning to the medium. I mean... We're here on a podcast talking about games, treating them seriously. Jacob, you, you may, you know, have a huge um, footprint now, I, I would say, kind of informing people, uh, informing the ways that they think about games seriously and have imaginative and interpretive um, kind of analyses of them and you know, I think games are, are wonderful, but at the same time, I don't know, they're not, this isn't a novel thing that's being said about America, right? It's not, it's the bare minimum to look at the American project and say that there's a problem here, or to say that, hey, this this thing is not 
a thing controlled by like the deterministic will of a collected people, but really a very like privileged group of of powerful folks. Um, that's that's like surface level stuff. Um, I think I fundamentally agree that this is more interesting as a game about games, which is kind of a reductive way to talk about it. But I think Kojima is a way better game designer than he's a writer. Uh, that's the truth of Death Stranding. Yes, as well. yeah, yeah. Blake, Blake, you said that you like Death Stranding. I really adore Death Stranding, but I don't. I think there are moments in there which are very, uh, very human. I think Kojima sometimes has a way of grasping upon melodrama in a way that's important. People sort of deride melodrama sometimes and say, oh, it's not as serious, but our emotions are very important things, and we should embrace them. We're huge fans of the Yakuza games here. We love melodrama. But but what Death Stranding is doing in terms of a shared uh, infrastructure, in terms of what it means to build a path, for another player and how that ties into the themes of that game that's way more interesting than you know die hardman talking to you for 20 minutes like, yeah that that's the absurd stuff and that's kind of the same case here where jacob you were talking about writing about this game and i don't know if you ever got around to it but when i i in a fit of late night fury i forgot that i had never sent this to you which was james howell's piece Oh, I read it. Metal Gear Solitude, which is called Driving Off the Map, for those at home who have not heard about this piece. Driving Off the Map, James Howell, it's possibly, I would say, one of the most just really honed and focused pieces of formal textual criticism for video games in terms of saying, hey, this is what it means to repeat a space from game to game. This is what it means to repeat verbs from game to game. What does it mean that, the you know, in Metal Gear Solid 1, you defeat Metal Gear Rex by, you know, pointing your Stinger missile and shooting, and then the next time you defeat a Metal Gear in the tanker, you're just taking pictures, but it's the same mechanical thing that you're doing. What does it mean to have, you know, the Vulcan Raven arena functionally recreated when you're fighting Batman? And what does that contrast mean? Um, and that's, I mean, that's part of the plot. The plot is like Ocelot being like, actually, you were inside Shadow Moses the whole time, baby. But in terms of what that means for the mechanics, it's very important. And that's the more interesting stuff I think that's happening in Metal Gear Solitude to me than anything else that happened. We spent so much time talking about the the repeated motifs of this game and how much we could give them kudos for being intentional and how much it feels like just returning to the, the same old bag of tricks. And it's like, if you want to give them the maximum uh, kind of, like, if, if you want to engage with them as if every single decision was absolutely intentional, which I do think is, a, a, like, a good way of engaging with a piece of art, uh, Howell's Howell's essay is remarkable for that in terms of just like tracking every way that it is mirrored and inverted and whatever and it is the kind of thing that the end of this game then begs you to think about you know it's not it's not subtle in terms of like when it tells you this is what it's doing but if you really want to dig in there and find every little piece of when that is happening and why uh, he does an incredibly good job at doing that. It's that right there that I found so like infinitely compelling about the final two hours of this game is all of that stuff coming to a head more so than, you know, oh, we had a 
fight in the financial district of Manhattan. What does that mean? It's like, I don't really care. Uh, but all of this stuff as kind of a frustrated sequel, I think is like really incredible yeah. stuff. Um, Harper, I want to ask you about uh, a line that is in your piece on Kotaku, which is a, a long form piece that you wrote on it. You did one on MGS1 as well. And did you do ones on the, the original Metal Gears? I did them on the MSX ones too. And then I was going to do the rest. And I was like, no, I should, I should leave. I should get out of, of this. I, I, look, a, a good call for your own well-being. Yeah. Um, but you said early on, and I, I wrote this line down, and I was like, I really want to talk about this. Um, as you said, Metal Gear Solid 2's fear is that player behavior undermines the craft of the artist. Um, which I, uh, I, I just like, I would love for you to kind of expand on that and and let us kind of inform how we talk about uh what this game is doing towards the ending yeah so my fundamental position on games is that the player is a very antagonistic presence um i've used this this framework makes it sound funny but that that starting position has informed a lot of criticism i've done a lot of public speaking i've done um and for good and for ill, some people follow me on it, and some people get very upset when I suggest this. Um, a phrase I've used from, from time to time is this idea that players are tyrants. Um, there's a controlled space which exists, and we impose a great a deal of control over it. And that control sometimes runs contrary to, say, like what a character wants. We can make characters do things that they don't want to do. Um, and that, there's something very interesting about that to me. And it's also very interesting to me in the moments when a player and um, like a character want the same thing, which is to say sometimes they might not want it for the same reasons, but when we are more aligned with the characters that we are controlling, I think that's very interesting. And I think the times when we are not, when there's frictions, is uh, equally interesting. And then when it comes to the idea of a player kind of rubbing up against the work of a creator, I think there's there's a degree to which game storytelling positions itself or, you know, eventually, like, especially in this era, starts to position itself. And now we now that we have our, our AAA, HBO, whatever the hells, really positions itself as like serious, intentional storytelling. But there's no way that an author can... And a great deal of Metal Gear Solid 2 seems to be preparing itself for the ways in which the player might rebel against what is what they're being told, what they're being asked to do. Um, and I think, I, I, I don't know if there's a fully antagonistic relationship between the game Metal Gear Solid 2 and the player, but there is something there. There is a kind of antagonism where I think very often the player is asked to do things that they just would rather not um c4 just yeah, like swim through that flooded swimming. hallway twice yes there's a lot of intentional points of friction and I, I i don't fully know what to make of it whether or not the idea is if you push through that then like you're one of the true soldiers who who, who did it baby but there there's a way in which i think this game more than most games at the time is really um, kind of putting up the defenses against the player because it does want to say something and I think it's very afraid that the player will devalue that message through 
some type of shenanigans. Yeah, I think you know, not not to. Um, uh, I don't. I don't want to fight a man who I uh, respect and is also dead. But like Roger Ebert's video game art thing, which people talked about uh, a huge amount ten years ago and now has kind of faded away, wasn't that he. He didn't say video games aren't art because I think they're stupid. He was like video games aren't art because they are essentially like uncontrolled environments that like when you're making a movie, you can control exactly what the person is going to see and experience. And when you're making a game, you can't do that. I think it's a curious way to define what is and is not art. But like I do like the idea that um, uh, that like these these same things are what Metal Gear Solid 2 is kind of trying to figure out like do you want to know what i think is wild jacob i bet it's the fact that butterflies can taste with their the bottom of their feet okay well now <laughs> this is completely derailed the ad because i do need to know about that but no what i think is wild is we've been doing this podcast long enough that people have probably listened to us talk for like multiple full days yeah people are dumb what do you want what do you want me to say Okay, no, but but that's not what's crazy. What I meant is that some people have listened to us talk for hours on end, and they're still not signed up for Nebula. Wait, you're right. That's full-on bonkers. I mean, do they not know how much better this show is on Nebula? That yeah. it's not interrupted by ads? That some of our best yeah. episodes are exclusive there? I mean, we're going to do a full-on commentary on the Mark Wahlberg Max Payne movie, and they'll only be able to hear it on Nebula. Hold on, we are? That, yeah, I haven't told you this yet. Oh my god, that sounds like a nightmare. Well, I'm getting mad about that, but I'm also getting mad about how many people have not gone to nebula.tv slash something rotten, especially since we give them a huge discount for signing up with that freaking link. Like, I'm not mad, I'm just disappointed. Disappointed mm. that they've been missing out on so much of our delicious thoughts and beautiful content. You lost me again, shut up. Nebula.tv slash something rotten. <laughs> I think let's just start talking through the the events that happen in this section, and then we will certainly get to kind of big, big ideology points and big parts of design, um, and and we can spend a while on there. Um, here's here's probably the worst thing in the game to me is getting the backstory on EE and Yeah, Adon. brother, yeah. preach. My God, I think this game would if EE would have been. Anyone else, not Otacon's sister, I think the game would have been just fine not having this entire plotline. Um, I think it really gets lost in the sauce here and bogs down like what is leading up to a really great moment when we have to like spend time watching Otacon cry in hallways. There's one thing about the Metal Gear Solid series that I've never been fully great at, at untangling or understanding what the read is. It's everything involving the Amarok family. <laughs> Starting here mm -hmm. and then extending all the way to, like, Fend of Pain. I don't know what to think about this whole stuff. I don't know what to think about Huey Emmerich in general when we get there uh, in those games. It's, it's, I don't, I don't know why. Why? Why? I don't understand. It, it seems like the, the writing is, it's like there is, there is an emotional core that I feel like the story should be pushing towards, even if I don't think it's that interesting. But it's like, you can see it's there, which is, uh, you know, Otacon feels guilt. Essentially, like, that's that's the whole thing. Like, the, the Emmerich thing is, oh, we feel guilt about designing these war machines, and now also we feel guilt because, like, uh, the sister died and it was kind of his fault. You know, and it's like, 
when if you want to have it there and then he cries because because he feels like he never got to resolve things with her that's fine but then they throw in just so many plot points that that send your head spinning in a way that is not like oh my gosh what does this new information mean it just like completely deadens the emotions because we find out that um ee uh you know she's scared of water she almost drowned in the pool Otacon didn't help because he was having an affair with his stepmother. Uh, that that he was he was sleeping with his stepmother at the time that EE e. was drowning in the pool, and that EE's uh, e. father did not die uh, simply because he like died trying to save her, but killed himself in the same pool because of because of the affair question mark. And it's just kind of like. It's like, what the fuck am I supposed to do with all that? You know, like, what? how am I supposed to, like, read that into the story? Jacob, I got the answer. Don't. Just keep, just move past it. That's what I did. <laughs> Water off a duck's back. This will sound like a weird phrase to say. Putting aside the issue of taste, which you can't. Right. It's, it's a weird yeah. thing to do. But also, it just, even if you rearranged it so it wasn't quite the same configuration of facts, I don't know what it offers mm -hmm. to the story entirely because I don't think you need another reason for uh, Otacon to feel such estrangement from Emma. This is just another added layer to it that is very odd to me. Um, and also, no thanks, I don't want any part of it. Yeah, and I think it also, like, I, I, it's most basic, or m maybe just a bare-bones criticism, is like, this is such a weird moment to drop this revelation because it grinds the pacing to a halt yep and like we're building up towards a climax and so much shit is going to happen in quick succession that this like detour for 20 minutes like su starts to kind of suck the wind out of the sails a bit and also it's just uh dumb <laughs> if you ask me the plot point in general of all this too is and this is something that kind of gets repeated in metal gear solid 4 which is kind of odd is there's a lot of ways in which autocon's experience in the series um is really defined by his relationship to women who essentially die for him in one yep, way or sure. for another. And it's really silly because mm -hmm. uh, we have this with Sniper Wolf and okay, whatever. That's like, he's infatuated with Sniper Wolf. Who wouldn't be? She's a sniper. She likes dogs. It's great. Yep. And then she dies and that is a character point for him. And... This happens again with Emma. This happens again with another character in Metal Gear Solid 4 as well. And it doesn't seem necessary to me because if there's one thing I actually really enjoy about this game, broadly speaking, is I like Otacon in this game a ton. I love the relationship he has with Snake. I love how he's grown into himself. And I'm fine with there being familial drama between him and Emma. But the pattern that we have kind of starting to repeat here throughout is just, it's the same plot with Otacon a lot, just different kind of variations on that theme. And it's one of the bigger fumbles in the series for me. Yeah, it, it just, it, it really just feels like it is the point in the game where Otacon needs to be sad about a dead girl. Yes. It's like it's 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 about that time and we've got to get it happening. Um, but that uh, then I will say a good thing is that he and Snake have a really complicated secret handshake, yes, they which do. they do, which I found very entertaining. 
They love each other. Um, They're great. Uh, but we fortunately we don't have uh we don't have to dwell on that for too long because a bunch of shit starts happening uh right away. Raiden gets betrayed maybe by Snake and Olga. There's the line where um you're switching sides now. Switching yeah, sides. Yeah, whoever I side I don't was recall on saying I was ever on your side like that stuff, right? And this is also this is the you finally see that the cyborg ninja is Olga. And if you hadn't put that yes. together by now, I don't know what to tell you. Yeah, we find out the cyborg ninjas, Olga, oh my gosh. Um, Big Shell just fully falls apart. The whole idea of, like, making sure it doesn't blow up because it would be an environmental catastrophe. It just, sorry, it's it's gone. Though I think there is some line about, like, they actually hadn't done so much cleanup, so it doesn't really matter. <laughs> and also, um, I almost said Ocelot. Otacon gets the hostages out there. Who are there? They yes. are, there are actual hostages. And he does get them onto his helicopter and gets them out of there. Right? Like, that's his yeah. big thing. Snake's like, you gotta do it for me, buddy. And so he does that as yeah. well. So and a don't lot worry of loose threads getting, the helicopter. Yeah, a lot of loose threads are kind of, um, uh, kind of removed from the stage because now we gotta get to the real juicy weirds yeah uh but then in case every other element of the game repeating itself had been too subtle for you uh suddenly we are just back in the torture room of metal gear solid one doing a very similar torture mini game which is something that i did not know was coming and uh i it is <laughs> like ocelot says you're in the memory of shadow moses like theoretically you were on arsenal gear but in no way does it read as like, yes, I'm inside a big ship right now. It just reads as like, I somehow I have been transported back in memory to the previous game. I was saying mechanically it repeats, right? Because you have to do your own kind of variation of the torture sequence. This is another case of Raiden going through the same beats as Snake, the player repeating those beats again, and kind of repeating those mechanics as a way to almost... um a really bizarre pilgrimage upon the path of the hero walk like them until until you become them kind of way right yeah except raiden is somewhat humiliated in this because he is completely naked and they do the austin powers slash simpsons movie thing of like blocking his dick with random items in the room very good <laughs> i quite enjoyed um but we do find out a lot of backstory on Raiden here, and this is this is like another big important beat. Is like he he hasn't he hasn't wanted to tell Rose about anything from his past, and what we know about him has been like, oh, he just he's this nerd who did a bunch of VR missions, and he thinks he's a real soldier. But in fact, we find out not the case at all. He was a child soldier. Uh, he was like a very brutal child soldier who like killed a whole bunch of people without remorse using a sword. Um, and he is Solidus's, uh, son, yeah. or Solidus is his godfather? Son. Well, not literally. He, so, uh, it's a later reveal on the top of the building, uh, where Solidus is like, hey, I killed your parents. Oh, right. That comes yeah, later. Right. But, yeah, so, so Solidus is out there as the president being like, I really want to do some war crimes in Liberia, and I will make all these children do it, and I will take them from their families. And have a bunch of child soldiers. Child soldiers, a topic that comes up in a couple of Metal Gear Solid games. Um, Metal Gear Rising. Yeah, I don't mean that dismissively. In Metal Gear Rising, a big part of Phantom Pain as well. It's it's clearly a topic that Kojima um, cares about. I don't ever. The thing I will never accuse Hideo Kojima of is not caring about things. 
Um, sure. Yeah. I, I will sometimes I, I will sometimes accuse him of perhaps not fully educating himself on certain things, although he at least makes the efforts. Right? I will never suggest that he doesn't make the effort, but he definitely cares about things. He cares about nuclear endurance. He cares about um, children in war zones in a way that I, I think is very genuine. The Kojima! I'm trying to think of the way to say this. I'm not going to say anything bad. Just I don't know how to like phrase it. The running thread of Kojima games and children I've been thinking about a lot with like child soldiers, um, the, the, the gene stuff like, hey, have some kids and pass on your passions to them or whatever. And then Death Stranding in general. I don't have a question, but what's going on with this guy? I, I, he, Yeah, I think he thinks a lot about, I mean, a major theme of this game is like, what do we pass on, uh, or the first game, what do we pass on genetically? Right. This game, what do we pass on culturally, you know, memetically? Um, and yeah, Death Stranding then just seems to be like, hey, what if it, what if you were a father for a whole game? <laughs> what would that be yeah, like? That's a, game, that's a game about a bunch of dads yeah. and like one mom. <laughs> and, and the mom is named Mama. Um, I I think the... At first, I was going to say that child soldiers almost feel like it's not like it's a bad thing to care about. I would I would never say that. But it is almost so simplistic of a topic that I was going to be like, OK, we like we all agree they're bad. Kind of what is what is the purpose of doing them here? But I think I think that is actually uh, not giving it enough credit because there is such a running thread here of culture making people into soldiers and video games being a medium primarily consumed by children and like so much talk about how video games are training for war and later Raiden says you know they made us watch action movies with macho guys to like you know image training to get us ready to be fighters I do think there is this kind of implicit connection and maybe explicit connection between uh, you know, Raiden being a child soldier growing up and then continuing to do violence and the way that Kojima clearly does think a lot about how media is affecting our view of violence and our view of like what what being a soldier. And means. I mean, like this is something we talk about a lot on this show is the the video game to army pipeline. I mean, Jacob, no disrespect to your main man, but like Top Gun Maverick, they have plenty of deals with the Air Force. You know what I'm saying? Like, like <laughs> sure do. Uh, the Army buys ad spots on IGN and GameSpot. Just a just the way it goes. Um, I think this game is interesting in that it's it's doing it very early before I think Call of Duty brought this you know more into the public conscience. But like, I buy the idea that Raiden would just be like a trained on media. And want to kill because of it. I remember going to a GDC talk years ago. Maybe I've talked about it before. Where a guy who was a veteran talked about young kids joining because of Call of Duty. And they wanted to do hoorah shit. You know, I think that was his, like, quote. I was like, well, it's not necessarily how the army works. A lot of these kids would be disappointed about how bore Would join and be very disappointed in how boring, you know, the day-to-day of the army is. Um, should be clear, just don't join the army is my take on that. Uh, but I, 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 I like, and I buy into the idea that like Raiden would be force fed all this like entertainment to prepare him for like killing. I don't necessarily think it's like maybe the most true to life thing. I don't know that like they're showing dudes Rambo in the barracks. Maybe they are. I don't know. I've never been in the army. Hey, look, a lot of people watch Top Gun and signed up for the Air Force. That's true. Yeah. Even though he's in the Navy. I guess what I'm saying is like, I don't think that's necessary anyway 
regardless, I like this plot point is what I'm trying to say. And I think uh, if there is anything prescient in this game, it is the idea that maybe video games would be used as recruitment tools, even if it wasn't in 2001. Though I don't exactly know if they were or not. I think if it wasn't, I think if it wasn't layered with the initial part of Snake, especially showing so much derision for Raiden when he talks about his VR training, if it was just Raiden being like, oh, actually, my pass out a child soldier, and it didn't have the initial, comp- the, uh, the first complication of, well, the first thing we thought about him was that he was just playing uh, <laughs> Metal Gear Solid VR missions for PlayStation 1 the entire time. Um, I wouldn't accept it as much. It would feel a little, um, almost like shocky for shocky's sake, right? Because there's, there's a world in which you just kind of have that, and and it, it kind of exists in and of itself. But when you combine it with the VR stuff, when you do have him talking about things like movies, or even, I mean, it's it's a small thing, but it's like they're like, hey, we put gunpowder in your food, dog. Like everything that you consume that we gave to you was somehow tainted by one way or another, um, by the mechanisms of war, by the product of war. Yeah, I mean, it's like Raiden doesn't even have... Literally put in... He doesn't even have his own blood in this game. Like, they took out his blood and gave him different blood. (laughs) Something, Something we're not talking about, though, that I find interesting is, like, Kojima is commenting not just on the industry itself, but him. he's commenting on himself, which I find very interesting because he is making violent games with badass dudes on the surface right and i think like i don't want to speak for the man i only know the text i've been given here but it seems like there is some kind of reckoning him reckoning with himself there and his role in it i don't know if he necessarily feels guilty or whatever the case may be but i think like he does see if not this game definitely mgs1 as like playing into that it's easy to like think you could play mgs1 and be like snake's so fucking cool i want to be a special ops guy you know no it's totally i mean it's like i've been thinking about uh mgs1 has has the you like all the killing don't you where the where the game accuses you of enjoying in the the violence and the like bloodlust that's in the game and uh that was in 1998 since then, we have seen a lot of games do the same thing to the point where it's almost lost all meaning. You know, when when the final boss of an Uncharted guy says, like, think about how many people you've killed. I'm like, I don't care. It, you know, that doesn't that doesn't ring true for me. Something that I've thinking about, been thinking about with Metal Gear Solid 2 is that this is almost it. it's like it feels like the only way to actually progress that commentary. You know, it is it is fairly easy to say you enjoy all the killing, don't you? And have that be kind of the thing that your game is saying about violence. And Metal Gear Solid 2 is such a a bizarre and sometimes hostile object because it really feels like it is trying to continue that conversation. Like, take it one more step beyond it. And, and that's kind of what makes it so confounding because you have to get into this really weird space to be like, where do we go after we acknowledge that video games make killing fun? And it turns out you have to go to the system for societal sanity I, whatever. I also think the reason it works in MGS2 is a simple show-don't-tell approach. You know, like it's the easy escape they do a lot of telling in that right, game but like bear with me here jacob uh it's the easiest scapegoat in the world but like i i don't care that kratos b- feels sad 
in God of War 2018 because he killed Medusa. I just don't give a shit. I never will. I don't think that game did a good job of like approaching that topic. However, Metal Gear Solid 2 is like, ah, here's some footage of the army juxtaposed against like video game footage. And it's like, it's, it's more explicit. It's more beat over your head. But I also think it makes that message work better by just like putting it in your face. By like showing you exactly what Kojima's thinking on the screen rather than like hinting at it or having a character tell you how do you get what I'm trying to say here? I think at the core too, it's a bit of the um it's a bit of the it's like the Francois Truffaut quote, right? Like there's no such thing as an anti war movie. Um and whether or not you believe that's true, I don't know if it, I entirely buy that logic, but there is something um there is an inherent power to the image, right? That Um, No matter what context you place it in, no matter what commentary you attach to it, there's an an inherent animalistic power to images that speaks in and of itself beyond what we might want them to actually be saying. I think a lot of creators who make stuff that is nominally anti-war struggle with this problem. Um, this is this is kind of famously like the whole arc of Yoshiyuki Tomino's thing with Gundam, right? Is like I made this anti-war thing, and now it's like very toyetic, and it culminates in, in some very interesting stuff in Turn A Gundam, which is very funny. But we're not here to talk about Gundam. But it, it is this thing of you know just in the same way that like critiques of capitalism get consumed by capitalism, right? Critiques of war end up getting consumed by uh, the facilitators of war, right? And, and and we see that in in languages of like you know oh less lethal even that like that sort of language or things like that right like no matter no matter how you position it um, there's like even just the power of the image of the gun right like there is something there which you could place that image into whatever vicious context you want and the raw image of the gun for whatever reason just evokes something beyond uh the critique that maybe we want to attach no i've been um i I can't remember where i read this it might have just been like a reddit thread but i I read someone kind of theorizing about like one of the reasons that mgs4 maybe kind of spins so far off the rails is like between two and four you essentially have the advent of call of duty which is just so like unbelievably forthright with like the kind of subtle critiques of media that Kojima was kind of trying to do that it's like what do you even do after like you know Call of Duty exists in the world like how do you how do you write about like video games uh being about war and creating false ideas of war when Call of Duty already exists and is like doing the thing that you were trying to comment on to an exponentially higher degree than games were doing when you started talking about this. There's a point where you ask yourself, like, what the fuck are we doing? Um, yeah. I don't know if we can swear, but I'm sorry. <laughs> Correct. Um, and I feel this about video games very often, right? Where I see all sorts of different patterns in it and I go, I don't know if this is worth it. And I think the the way like call of duty in and of itself like no judgment to the people working on those games whatever you're all individuals i don't know what you're up to maybe you need money you need to live i get it we we all live in a society but it's such a yeah i guess i'll just kind of say it right like i don't need to be polite i think it's such a damning scar on the industry 
and everything we kind of pretend that the industry can be when really it's it's the money making franchise and it, it really does boil to, and I, I mean it says something that the money making franchise yep. is just war war the game um, well, so riding super naked, and after this uh, this section <laughs> ends, Ryan remains super naked. Um, I, I I really don't think there's um, yeah. So he's a, he's a child soldier, but there is this whole section where uh, you're running around and and he's covering his crotch with his hands, which means that you like you can't do anything. You can't like knock out guards or like hang from ledges or whatever. Um, and you can still cartwheel around and do all this stuff. And and my partner Annie said something that I, I think she mostly meant as a joke, but it really made me think where she was like, he looks like a Barbie. Like he looks, it, it, it almost doesn't feel, it feels like even though he is covering his crotch, it really doesn't feel like he would have genitalia under there at all. He is he just doesn't. such this kind of like weird. Yeah, I mean, it's he like you, you break the camera. Um, uh, and, and it's like, you can see all of these like, kind of unclear but like uh looks like essentially cyber markings on his body where he maybe has like prosthetic or enhanced limbs or something and it is this weirdly like it is extremely vulnerable for him but it's also kind of dehumanizing because you recognize that like that's not what a naked human being looks like yeah i think i don't know what what potential conversations you might have had when you were first introduced to Raiden, but i think there is a way in which he very clearly represents a different kind of idealized form of mm -hmm. like, the human body. Uh, a thing, a thing that's super present in Kojima's work is just the ways in which male bodies get fetishized. Obviously, women bodies too. Not to not to take away from the way in which uh, Kojima's camera tends to leer at women, because there is a difference, right? Like his camera leers at women, but his camera admires men in a very specific kind of way. Um, but I mean, part of it's just the compare and contrast of gruff soldier, tough guy snake to beautiful human Raiden, right? And, and in the document of, um, you know, of the game pre-production, some of that is about trying to draw in different audiences to the game. There is, there is a very, I mean, this is true of everything when you're making a game, but there is a very deliberate way in which Raiden is crafted as a way to widen the demographic scope of Metal Gear Solid 2, and when you look at his body in this game, um, especially in this sequence, uh, there is a way in which he it is very manufactured. And, and also, there's there's some, there's kind of a theme in this in these games about scars and bodies too. There's a whole moment in Metal Gear Solid 3 where the villain will comment on your body depending on how damaged you have been throughout the game or things like that. And so. <laughs> And it's almost damning, right? There's like a the perfection of Raiden also speaks to um, the artifice of of his like bravado in a certain way. Like, hey, I'm the guy who's always been in war, but like, what do you have to show for it? What if you? I mean, he has lots to show for it in in theory, but physically, he's very pristine. yeah. He is. I, uh, pristine is a great way of referring to it. That he just he he does not look. Uh, he he looks like a guy who's done a million VR missions and has never been on a battlefield. Essentially, very, very pale. This is the White um, Devil, Jack the Ripper. Uh, but you you can only focus on uh, Ryan's nudity for uh, so long before Campbell uh, just steals the stage here and starts going fucking loco in uh, 
a scene that I knew was coming and yet did not disappoint in any way. Shape, Jacob or form. Glenn Geller, Glenn Geller, Glenn Ross. Did you? Now Campbell calls you. I would wager four hundred times. Yep. To say some bananas gibberish, and it all rocks. Mm-hmm. Did you, however, call Campbell four hundred times back? Oh yeah. Because some yeah, I want to hear wild everything. shit starts happening. Mei Ling shows up at one point. Uh, at one point, your uh, radar just turns into a sexy lady. A uh, uh uh-huh. Which, there's, probably, there's a whole thing with the Konami Eyes girls that we haven't really probably uh, got into. I will say something about that moment, which is that if, if players hadn't noticed that the radar screen sometimes adopts views that the that the character would not necessarily yeah. have, that's the moment where it's very obvious. But this happens not the same way, but earlier, like, if you shoot a piece of glass and a guard sees the glass that's broken, like, on the tanker, yeah, yeah. it will show that yeah. in your little radar screen. So there's a way in which that space has never been entirely literal, but maybe players don't really yeah, notice yeah, yeah. it until they finally go, here's the sexy lady. Uh, well, I sure noticed it when the sexy lady popped up, because I was like, what's going on in the corner of that? Uh, at one point, he starts just reading the etymology of certain flowers, I believe. It's the coolest shit yeah. that's ever been in a game, ever. No offense to every other game, but step it the fuck up. It's it's so good. The um The music is perfect in the scene and how unnerving it is. Um, there's, there's the, like, the most famous one, I think, is if you call him while you're fighting all the Metal Gears, he does, he says something about, like, seeing a, a worm in space and uh, I need scissors 69, like, that sort of thing. But my favorite one was, if you, you, there's one time when you call him and he's just like, I'm so sorry uh, for making you pay for lunch the other day. (laughs) To tell you the truth, my finances are not doing well. And it's like, it's so weird in that, like, how normal it is. And the the camera, another just like, oh, I, I would never have thought of this, but it is so weird and good, is before the camera starts showing that he has, like, a skull on his face... It just starts showing different angles of him where you have been you've been calling him and you get the same angle of everyone's face on the codec the whole game. And then it's just like slightly lower or you're looking at the back of his head or something. And it really is it is that kind of like I think this is something that Kojima is exceptionally good at from a game design standpoint of you did not know that you could make this aspect into a uh like emotional storytelling device you know that most most people would see that and be like that is purely gamic you know what 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 is there in that to twist it into some way of like communicating an emotion and nothing goes unused here everything is made weird in some unexpected way i also like that like it would be very easy to say oh we used ee's virus and now metal gear we got it but, like, the fact it infects the game is so cool. And, like, not what I expected. What, like, I, I didn't expect my game to start breaking around the idea that, like, we had uploaded a virus. I think that is so neat. And it's, like, it, it shows... Suriel said this about Killer7's pause menu. He said, like, Suda understands everything is narrative. And that's how I feel about this moment. Is like, having Campbell be in different angles in the codec it's like yes everything is narrative and it's so fucking cool i will deflate the bubble only ever so slightly to no. say 
This is not this is not the first time a character in a Metal Gear game has told the player to turn off the game. Um, this happens in, I believe, Metal Gear? My recollection might be incorrect, but there is a moment where Big Boss calls you and is like, Hey man, just like, just don't. Just turn it off, right? This is before you kind of know that Big Boss is the is the villain. Um, it's very brief. Uh, a thing uh, I think this game does does all this stuff very very much better, obviously. But there's a lot of stuff that repeats in this game that's been done ever since the MSX as well. There there have been uh, electrified floors and like remote control missiles forever. Oh yeah, in these games, for instance. Um, so this is like this is like a a much more crystallized and and well-considered version of what if we make the player wonder about uh, the hardware to an extent too counterpoint i was born in 1994 so games don't exist before the ps2 to me that's fine so the other ones didn't exist it started here as far as i'm concerned no that's that's the american (laughs) one that's the american viewpoint anyway right right? there are no games uh, before metal gear solid and hey look that's why they chose Raiden. is he never looks back and he never considers his history (laughs) yes um I, uh, other things that I love here, the rooms in Arsenal Gear are named after body (laughs) parts, which is essentially, we just played uh, the scariest game ever made, Anatomy, on the show not long ago, and, like, the idea of you being in, like, the ascending colon is like, oh god, what's going on here? Um, the, uh, the thing... I guess, I mean, it's like there's so much good surreal writing going on here. They start showing different, he just starts, Campbell just starts rattling off like different VR missions, you know, from previous games and it will like show them and whatever. Um, uh, there, There is this whole conversation with Rose where Rose uh, tells you that it was all just a game, but she did fall in love with you, but kind of not. And this whole time, it is really unclear what Rose is, where, like, Campbell is fully a construct, but, like, I was really struggling with, and this was, in some parts, hurt by playing Metal Gear Solid 4, in which Rose is, like, a real character who's there a bunch, but, like, I, you know, it really seems to, it wants you to not know and to be kind of interrogating yourself, as Raiden is, about, like, is Rose real at all? Is she real and just playing you? Is she actually in love with you? You know, what do you do with any of this? And Rose does not help with her calls. The design document outlined a different version of this for the initial uh, way that uh, Metal Gear Solid 2 was going to do that, which was that Rose was initially going to be one of the hostages present on the big shell, and you would keep on trying to find her, and she would always just be not there, kind of princesses in another castle style, and that was going to be a, a mechanism by which the player was supposed to question whether or not Rose was actually, like, real. Um, So that's always been kind of a goal from the earliest conceptions of the game, to kind of make the player doubt whether this person that, you know, Raiden supposedly has a a fundamentally strong, actual, existing relationship with is is real or not. Um, I I, I, I much prefer it when it's just somebody you're talking to on Codec. The Codec space in general is this space that, like, feels safe. It's the space we go to when we're like, oh, oh switch to uh, nano communication so nobody can listen to us. It's like a very private space, um, even within the fiction of the game. And to have it be a space where suddenly, um, like we were saying before, it can be infected and changed. Also, when you're eventually talking to Rose, she just gets disconnected. <laughs> 
like you can just remove somebody from that space that you considered potentially space uh, safe before excuse me um, there's something very interesting yeah about that. um but we get through all of that and suddenly out of nowhere solid snake shows up at his solid snakiest he has never looked more cool his his bandana is blowing in the non-existent breeze he i mean he looks exactly like the version of him that's in super smash bros brawl um and if you found the shaver and gave it to him he's clean shaven here (laughs) that's right um and and he uh you know he gives you back your equipment and whatever uh but easily the best line in this at least from a kind of game breaking perspective is that he says hey if you need some ammo let me know and then he points at his headband and says infinite ammo meaning that this snake has cheats turned on and he is just playing with the bandana that gives him infinite ammo (laughs) coolest shit of all time game Um, he gives you a sword this is a, a big moment where, uh, Harper, you write a lot in I think it's one of the LA. most important moments of the game and perhaps of the entire series. Yeah, okay. I won't, I won't say what you said. Please, just, just tell us. Oh, I think, I think in a game about identity where the player has just been repeating all the stuff that Snake has done, both like in a sort of literal plot sense and then mechanically, it's super important that Raiden gets his own verbs and actions, right? Like he gets to perform actions and uh, express himself functionally, right, in a way that Snake never does. This is unique to him. It doesn't repeat later on in Metal Gear Solid 4 or anything. It is a unique mode of communication which is given to him. And that's big because I I think the game is fundamentally incomplete if you do not have the player doing things that are physically and mechanically different uh, at, at a certain point. Uh, otherwise, you really are just an echo of Solid Snake. But you're not. You're Raiden. You're you. You're Jack. You're whatever. And you finally... I mean, it's towards the same goal, right? Like, the if you boil down all these verbs and, like, to their core, it's like, what are you doing? You're killing. But that's reductive and boring and not always the best way to look at a thing. Um, it's like, yeah, this is this is an ex- a form of expression given to the character, which has a little bit more range and variety to it as well. The way that you sweep and swipe or stab or spin is very very cool. Yeah. Um. And then look, there there are ways to look at it uh, that are not simply killing, uh, but it is unavoidable that the next sections of the game, uh, you kill so many people, it it becomes a full on action game. There is no more stealth. You and Snake just run through rooms where dozens, if not hundreds, of dudes drop from the ceiling, and you just slice and dice through them all, and it is suddenly so much like gorier than the game has been before and it like it really feels i i've certainly read uh like many pieces and seen pieces talking about kind of like this feels like the game giving you what you wanted from like the action game perspective yeah. of like here's your blockbuster don't you like it you're I slicing dude's that, arms though, off because that's like such that that is one of i think that's a boring read a uh-huh. little bit right like that's 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 almost to the point where i want to be like that's remedial right like because uh-huh. because i don't think I, I think it's wrong to view this game or the Metal Gear series entirely just through the lens of, like, player satisfaction or dissatisfaction. I think that's the popular myth, and I don't think it's as interesting. 
necessarily. So how would you how would you read then the uh, the the big kill rooms? I mean, I don't know necessarily, but you know, my background's theater, right? And when when emotions build to a certain point in musical that words no longer facilitate what the characters need to express themselves, they burst out into song. And in a game like this, in a setting like this, there's no real way for Bryden to express this coming into himself other than through an act of extraordinary violence. I love it. I mean, I made the argument that Revengeance is a musical much more literally because it is. Yes. Um, but I but I really like the idea of this being uh, this being them bursting into song. Um the game continues to do really weird things. Uh, it it looks like your game overed. Uh, it will say fish and mailed, uh, and and hey. but you'll continue playing in like the little corner of the screen. You can't do that. You can't mail fission. How was that? Was that that's good, right. y'all? And that's how you know was that, that it's good, fake. y'all. Did you ever? Did you have a sinking moment in your gut when you're like, I, "Did I just yeah. die? Oh my god!" Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yep. absolutely. Um, there is. There is a, 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 you know, relatively quick line here, but something that I have been thinking about in in the couple days since I've beat this, this is one of the things that's like really stuck with me, is um, the, you get, you get more of an explanation of what the kernel is and who have you've been talking to, because the easy answer is it's an AI. It's not the real kernel, but it's an incomplete answer. And what they, what they tell you actually here is that it is not simply a computer separate from you that has developed this character of the kernel and is talking to you. It is actually like cobbling together bits of Raiden's consciousness into, like he has essentially created this character that he is talking to. And the it is still it is still an AI and that it, it has a directive and it's trying to pull him in specific points. But like the ways that it communicates with him are kind of created by Ryan's own brain to be like the most effective ways of getting him to do things and that feels like if if you want to start talking about kind of technology and algorithms with this game that's actually one of the most interesting points for me of it of like your own personalized something that is then guiding your behavior and it's not the same for everyone and it's actually sculpting that something out of bits of your pre-existing experiences i i just like i i loved that i loved that the the kernel was not simply a smart computer an incredibly fancy uh <laughs> version of a large language model right of just predicting the next thing that's expected to be said. And I mean, it obviously mm -hmm. does mean something that the expectation that Raiden puts together, and because Raiden's overlapping with the player, obviously it's just Campbell. Who's the guy I'm going to go out on missions with? Oh, it's going to be, it's going to be that fella. It's going to be the Colonel, who's really just yeah. the guy from Rambo. And like, you know, kind of, you could picture a different version, a different character might have someone who would treat them with a little more kindness or compassion or whatever, but like Raiden just creates this military guy who is going to kind of not let him explore his own emotions uh, because, like, that's not that's not what they need at this point. Um, okay, uh, Snake steals the Fortune boss fight from us. You think you're going to fight Fortune finally. No, 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 you don't. This is Snake's fight. You just have to climb up a ladder. Um, so then we enter quite a moment. What you might think of as, here's the big turning point of the game, uh, 
except there are four more to come. But you enter, you enter an arena that is in this totally abstract world that looks very much like the VR missions from Metal Gear Solid 1, and you're just left to kind of walk around there while uh, a voice... Is it... Is it it's Solidus. Is it... It's Solidus. It's, okay, it's, it's Solidus tells you that you've been in the the S3 simulation, which stands for the Solid Snake Simulation, where everything that you've been experiencing has been crafted to turn you into the perfect soldier. That essentially, if they put you through the same events that Snake went through in Metal Gear Solid 1, you would turn into uh, an equally effective soldier as him. It's all a training program. And then you fight... Uh, 12 or 20 or 6 Metal Gear Rays. Uh, Blake, S3, Solid Snake Simulation. Were you like, make sense to me? Like, yeah, so put me in there. I'm ready. Drop me in the SSS. How'd you do with the Rays? Easy boss fight. Uh, You just take the stinger, head, 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 head done. Easy. No, not a problem for me, pro gamer. Um, You know, sometimes they get lost in the sauce of these proper nouns, and I just say, yep. I'm with you. Here we are. Um, a a fascinating thing uh, for me is that all the Metal Gears are codenamed Rose, essentially, in like different spellings. R O two E R O five E. Which was just something that I I really. If you, if you play on Extreme, you have to defeat twenty of them. Yeah, which I am personally glad I did not. Yeah, a um, normal a normal it's just seven, which is like way more reasonable. I was on easy, and it felt like thirty of them. So I don't know what was up with that. Uh, on easy, it's five. Oh, okay. well, I felt like 30. Hey, still a lot. Uh, it's still still four more than the number of Metal Gears you have to fight in the first game. Yes, and people people are always like, oh, Raiden's, Raiden's totally a whip. And you're like, he canonically fought like a bunch of anti-Metal Gear Metal Gears and like beat the crap out of them. Yeah, about? also in Metal Gear Rising, he cuts one in half in the first 10 minutes of that game. Raiden is, the, uh, Raiden is literally God. <laughs> Per- perhaps it was my expectations of rising that made me disappointed I couldn't fight them with my sword because I thought that's what I was going to be like oh the perfect weapon but then no you've got to use the no stingers. you can deflect the bullets and I think you there's probably a chance that you can cut the missiles in half you can definitely do that with Solidus's stuff later on you can cut those missiles just straight in half oh but, that's cool but yeah you gotta you gotta use your stinger you gotta use your chaff you can use your grenade launcher that the game gave you for some reason that's never really useful but you can use it if you want like all that um, stuff available. so then again here is after this big boss fight you think wow here we go the the climax of the game in which a whole lot of stuff happens and and either of you please feel free to just jump in to kind of add things that i'm missing so you fight all these metal gears uh you end up on top of arsenal gear eventually um olga dies olga Olga is there. Yeah, Olga, um, she shows up kind of like Gray Fox to save you, right? Like from, because Raiden eventually gives up when he's fighting all the Metal Gears. Yeah, he's like, this is way too many robots. And he's correct. It's far too many. And she's going <laughs> to help him. And then Solidus is like, nope. He just shoots her. Solidus shows up. And hey, and again, the, uh, the, the contrast between war being bad and violence sometimes being unambiguously cool I was like, fuck, P90s are so cool. The fact, the the way that Solidus, who for some reason has Doc Ock arms, is like <laughs> using, throwing people around and using his P90s. I was like, god damn it, this guy, he's he's neat. Um, but then uh, you, 
you get on top of Arsenal, the virus has worked kind of that that EE put in. Um, Solidus reveals he doesn't care about Arsenal. He basically he wants to. He's like Fortune, you can have it. I don't care. All he wanted was the names of the Patriots so he can go kill them because he doesn't want anyone controlling the world. He wants to live, you know, out of out of step with the Patriots. And the only other thing that he really kind of cares about on Arsenal is the fact that it has nukes and he could detonate one over Manhattan and take it off the grid and just make it his own little place where people could be free. Yes. Um, yeah, but then it turns out that uh, Ocelot shows up. Ocelot's like, Solidus, uh, you thought this was about you. Uh, it's not. He then spells out uh, that literally the whole game has been exactly the same as Metal Gear Solid 1 on purpose. Everything was set up. Everyone was just actors, including, like, Fortune, uh, he tells her, was not really psychic. They put, like, an electromagnetic thing on her so she could be similar to the supernatural people that Snake fought in Metal Gear Solid 1. There's no such thing as miracles or the supernatural, only... <laughs> that's what he tells that's what the man with an arm of another man attached to him tells us um and uh he he shoots he shoots for fortune um but fortune Hold is on. okay and actually manages to do some because shit. yes her heart is her on heart. the right side and when when that reveal was dropped i was like i'm in the hands of a master here the lady's heart's on the right that's side good. That for I didn't I didn't actually pick up I mean I did I saw the heart line but I didn't think of it as as dumb poetically as that but I'm sure you are correct dextrophonia um, although I I don't think they use the term but but that's what it is so Ocelot gets ready to kill everyone but at a crucial moment uh Liquid then takes over him he's been kind of holding you know biding his time the whole time but the arm of liquid snake then takes control of ocelot uh decides that he's not going to kill everyone i one thing that kind of stuck out to me in these cutscenes is that ryan basically becomes completely unimportant to the plot like there are like five characters standing there and ryan doesn't say or do anything for basically this whole like 20 minute scene it's all about the snakes it, and really becomes... and really liquid snake only shows up in these moments because the expectation is for liquid snake to show up in these moments i i mean the, the whole thing about his ghost being present i mean when you read it through the lens of it being a sequel he shows up because players want him to show up essentially right and he and it, he'll do that through any means possible even if it means overriding another character um yeah and and so then and again an action moment that we probably wish we were doing ray dives off the deck of the ship well ray shoots a bunch of stuff at them fortune manages to deflect it because she is psychic actually uh you know take that science um in the hands of a master here <laughs> ray dives off the ship uh, Snake dives off after Ray. Oh, it's so sick. If only we were playing that character. Uh, but but we are playing Ryan instead. Um, and then here is the biggest moment of the game where I was like, damn, maybe they shouldn't have taken that thing out for 9-11. Because you see Arsenal driving, and then it just fades to white, and then you're in the middle of the financial district yeah. in New York. And it's like, could he use the cutscene of it crashing into the shit because it is very confusing that you're just suddenly there actually jacob no this is actually one of the more real to life things you don't of course live in new york harper did you used to live in new york 
I did for about four years, almost five years. Unfortunately, sometimes you're just in Manhattan and you look up and you've accidentally entered the financial district and you're like, fuck, how the fuck did I get here and how do I get out of here? <laughs> you're just on top of yeah, the Yeah, it's, it's actually, it's one of the only things that felt like a uh, nonfiction in this game. Yeah, it happens to all of us once or twice. We, we talked about, we've talked about a lot, the 9-11 thing, what has been removed, what hasn't. This part felt and not just the, uh, you know, the cutscene missing was one thing, but there are so many scenes at the end here where you can feel the conspicuous absence of American flags, where the entire shot is framed to include, like, a character and a flag, and the flag is just not there. And it's, like, surprising to me that in the discussion of the various things removed by 9-11. This feels like the biggest one of all, that, like, those shots would be fundamentally different if they had flags there. Can I um, leap forward a little bit uh, to say a flag mm -hmm. thing, which is, you know what was going to happen when Raiden killed Solidus, right? Do you know about this at all? Yeah, well, that, that he cuts down the flag and it, like, falls. He was supposed to cut down the flag and it was supposed to drape over his body. Because, like, that animation is still there. Like, Raiden does a weird thing with his sword that doesn't make any sense. But it does make sense if you know that he's supposed to be cutting down a flag. Uh, yeah, I, I just found that very interesting. Um, but here's where we get... Here's here's the real, like, the real kind of techno babble of this game. And I say that, but I actually love the direction that it it goes with this. Blake, give me your read on kind of when when Campbell starts really explaining what's going on. How did you feel? Blake is shaking his head. <laughs> I don't know, man. Like <laughs> like I'm sorry. Sometimes Kojima gets gets going and I just can't I I, I can't follow. And it all it went over my head. Um I did have a good joke that when you said this was the techno babble, I was gonna say no. Actually, that that one was called ghost babble. So I'll contribute that. I will now audible to the expert Harper nice. here to explain this to me. Oh, are we talking about the selection for societal sanity now? Is that where we're going? I yes, I think so. And specifically, what I want to talk about is what the patriot or not the patriots, but like what. What Campbell is, like what the AI is, because this was the part that I found kind of most exciting and unexpected. This is this is the stuff that kind of gets uh, dropped in later uh, entries of right. the franchise. I think the idea here about them not creating content, but creating context was really fascinating. Is that what you're asking, Jacob? Like that specific moment? Uh, no, it's it is when 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 Campbell says we're not what you would call human yeah. and you get the Formless. you get the little skull fakes oh right um, and they they've like formed organically in america yes that they are they are essentially like a a consciousness that was formed in the crucible of the white house over hundreds of years that it is this kind of like this embodiment of the american spirit made manifest and turned into this bizarre robot alien thought control thing but the idea that it was like it did just kind of happen organically and this is i think um and, and harper you can probably confirm this like this is kind of the richard dawkins thing where he also writes about like uh, this thing almost as being 
organic, that, like, uh, culture is forming a, a third entity of some kind. There's almost an idea here. Let me know if I'm, I'm getting too lost in the sauce. That America would always be inherently evil. And that there would be, like, like th- this the whole thing with, like, Campbell and Rose, I find to just be this, like, reprehensible evil thing. And the fact it's organic is like, well, it would just naturally occur that way. This country would just naturally breed something this like awful. I don't think it's I don't think it's natural as in it's it's predetermined. I think it is more that the American project has always been built yeah. on cruelty yeah, yeah, yeah. like since the country's inception. And so it's not, it's not like it had to be this way. Uh, to quote the song from Metal Gear Rising, um, but but instead that like. This is the only possible outcome when you look at the past 200 years of American history. Like, the only thing that could form would be this kind yeah. of eugenics for information yeah. no, that's, type program. I feel program. like that's what I was thinking. Okay. It's sort of, it's sort of positioned as the natural endpoint that, ar- that arises out of uh, this mixing pot of American political thought, right? And and it's it's important to note, you know, it's not, you know, they're not saying we were created out of the worst impulses of these specific politicians from this party or whatever. The idea here is this is a collective force that represents all of American political power, um, regardless of party, regardless of of um, time and place. It, it all builds to this entity which eventually seeks to um, police language, to police thought. Language, again, another thing that's very important in Phantom Pain. Uh, Kojima really concerned with what it means to limit the ability to express a thought, and that's sort of uh, something here as well. Uh, the idea that uh, eventually... America itself becomes such a fundamental force of nature that it has a continuity that extends beyond its citizenry or or its um or its politicians. It just becomes uh, you know a natural disaster almost the same way that a, that a hurricane exists. It's very fast. Yeah, and I think something that we touched on uh, last time is like my. Uh, I dislike uh, ideas like the Illuminati in part because the the idea of essentially like a secret race of, of lizard people or whatever who are controlling the country and doing all of this stuff, which often spins into anti-Semitism when you're talking about these sort of uh, conspiracy theories, is like, is it is too easy, it's too kind of dumb to just think that, like, the whole thing is the fault of, in this case, 12 patriots who are deciding everything and have replaced the president. And what I found so, like, so much more compelling about this idea is that it is, like, it it is just this kind of unstoppable institutional force that is the collective result of all of the decisions that have been made over hundreds of years. You know, and this is, like, when, when I used to be in, um, in, in actual critical race theory classes uh, in college, you know, not like learning about Martin Luther King critical race theory, um, we would we would talk about how the the force of white supremacy in the U.S. is essentially like anything that people might want to attribute to the Illuminati 
Like, those kind of things have actually happened, and they have been largely as a result of white supremacy. And the idea that, like, for instance, for, for modern capitalism to exist, there needs to be essentially an underclass who works for almost no pay, either, like, literal slavery or, like, uh, you know, immigration and, and undocumented migrants being able to be paid essentially slave wages. And the way that, like, the country adapts so that these systems survive, that when when slavery ends or when Jim Crow ends, there is a new underclass that is created so that this kind of thing can keep happening. And it is not that there is uh, 12 guys in a room saying, like, how do we make sure there's still an underclass to continue the American capitalist project? It is that kind of the entire country is pointed towards this goal because its history has made it into a mechanism for white supremacy and a mechanism for, like, you know, gender control and, you know, all of the other systems of oppression that kind of spawn out of the same idea of of oppression. And so, like, it's just, I, I was just so glad and excited that the game... Again, maybe giving too much credit to Kojima for thinking through all of these things, but that, that it does not take the simplistic approach of just being like, it's a bunch of, you know, it, it's a handful of bad people who are making the bad decisions for all of us. Yeah, I think it's important to note too, because um, we're talking fundamentally about what the Patriots are and not necessarily right now what they want. Um, mm-hmm. The thing they want, obviously, is control in the in the most broad sense, but um, to say more specifically the thing that they are afraid of it's um freely shared information right the argument here is that the raw political force that is america is threatened in the early moments of the wider digital age by the ability for its citizenry to freely converse to freely have access to information and to freely uh you know, sort of learn about things removed from the specific uh, mechanisms of, of, you know, media conglomerates and things like that. Uh, it, to a certain extent, that's like a very quixotic way of looking at the internet, right? It's a, it's a very early internet idea of like, this thing is so big that it enables all this free thought, um, which can fundamentally uh, threaten uh, the, you know, the the upper class. And uh, I mean, there's a way, there's ways in which we've seen that's true. We've seen the importance of social media in certain movements and things like that. So there's truth to it, but there's also a way in which it's a very early conception of the internet, of this idea of um, people uh, having access to information in a way that empowers them with the caveat that, uh, and this is a thing where I think this is one of the things that people consider more, um, prescient uh, out of anything, anything that's said here. The, another argument that, in, that ultimately arises when Rose and Campbell are talking to you about their, you know, the Patriots' anxieties is that, yes, initially there will be all this sort of um, access to information which empowers people, but eventually it starts to turn into something more balkanized, right? Um, so it's this burst of information that empowers the citizenry and then over time those pools get corrupted until um, there's a certain fragmenting that ex- that happens as well which um, I mean to certain 
to a certain extent uh, represents uh, a sort of breaking of like the American id or ego or whatever. Right? Yeah, it's I, I I think what you're referring to or one of the lines that hit for me the most is is Rose says or you know, AI Rose, says, Everyone withdraws into their own small gated community, afraid of a larger forum. They stay inside their little ponds, leaking whatever truth suits them into the growing cesspool of society at large. And the colonel says, The different cardinal truths neither clash nor mesh. No one is invalidated, but no one is right. Which, uh, yeah, kind of, is, is like, if you want to read that as describing subreddits, it sure does feel like it describes subreddits. But I also think that's a kind of a limited way of looking at, like, the the true commentary that it's making. But it is interesting in the sense that it, it really is, you, you're, you're provided with the ability to pursue your own expression and creativity. And it's a very, I mean, I guess it's prescient, but it's also a very unflattering idea that even with that, what eventually happens is that you get radicalized yeah. in one way or another. Um, I, I want to read one more thing about this, and then I want to move on to Raiden choosing his own destiny, because we can't we can't leave that behind. But there's a um, a blog on uh, called Metal Gear Solid 2 is not about the internet by Matthew Weiss that was written uh, in 2020, kind of in reaction to like discussions about like Trump and the internet and all that, um, where he says... Um, it's amazing to me that even today, in a world that looks an awful lot like the dystopian one MGS2 was projecting, critics who laud the game seem mired in its finer points about tech and nerd culture rather than its larger points about mythology, oligarchy, and propaganda. Focusing on how it portrays the dangers of social media seem especially misguided since those dangers in the context of MGS2's totalitarian narrative are the excuse the government gives as to why citizens should not be allowed to govern themselves. It's not a critique made by the game, it's a critique made by the fascist government in the game to justify their fascism. And so there is... there is this way in which us talking about how Metal Gear Solid 2 is about the internet and us, you know, broadly, not just in this conversation. Like, there is so much going on in this game's ending that it is really hard to communicate kind of the different fine points that it is putting on, like, what it views as dangers and what it views as, you know, like, what is going to happen with history. Anyway, let's talk about, uh, as, as we draw to a close here, what does Raiden do with all this? Because there is kind of this large narrative of what the country is doing, and then there is this very focused individual narrative on, like, what what do you do with this? And, and Harper, when you were writing about it, I think this was this was where you... Uh, I'll, I'll let you say if you say this or not, but, like, your, your essay really seemed to find the most, like, uh, emotional resonance in the idea of, like, what Raiden does in this world that it's kind of spiraling out of control he just kind of cuts his his way out of it right like it's important i mean it, it, images right solonis throws the sword and it breaks the handcuffs on raiden right and he's forced into this fight but um at the same time it's it's a necessary one both for survival but also kind of um removing himself from the weird espionage project that he's been a part of i mean the end of the game in theory is just hey go talk to your girlfriend go talk to people um but in order to get there he you know he has to go through the ringer a little bit it is kind of it's interesting that the game ends with this kind of message of like you have to choose your own path um it almost 
it almost feels uh, too simple given like everything that it has confronted us with. It's like, how could how could we possibly choose our own path when the real S3, which I don't know if we said is is the system for societal sanity that is essentially like a thought control device for for the entire country or world to define kind of what their truth is. Um, but but, you know, as Snake says, you just have to pick something to believe in and then and then do it. And, like, what you believe in has to be up to you. Yeah, Bryden's very much like, what What should I believe in? Snake's like, man, that's, I don't, do whatever, man. It's not my, it's not my problem. <laughs> just, just stop, stop uh, being a product of, of everyone else around you and, and start to self-direct just a little bit, please. But, I mean, the, and it's small steps, first steps, but... Yeah, take uh, Blake, what do you think of like the style of these last couple cutscenes? A little bland. Um, I like when Raiden throws the the name tag. I kind of wish I would have put my own name, so it would have made it hit a little harder. I put Reagan's my dog's name, and I was like, oh. <laughs> I put Raiden because I thought that oh, you know, yeah, like yeah. what you were supposed to do was um, like Link. Yeah, <laughs> like I think you didn't you didn't like the uh, the the real life footage of New York. I was like, hey, that's where I live. Uh, there's my apartment. Um, that's not true. I don't live in that area. That would be a crazy place to live. Um, no, I think there is, in MGS1 and MGS2 especially, there's this, like, MGS2 is presenting such a bleak idea of the world, especially the world Kojima at that point seemed to think we were about to enter as the internet proliferated further. Um, and I, I, I think this, like, you know, there's that quote from Dazed and Confused where uh, McConaughey's character is like, you just got to keep living, man. L-I-V-I-N. And that's kind of what the ending of this game is, in a way. And I'm like, that's too, it's too simple. It's too neat. It's too wiping my hands clean of everything else I just said to be like, Raiden, you just got to have a passion, man. Go play, take up, like, violin, man. Like, be stoked on it. You know, like, you ever tried photography? You might like it. Go to a wine and painting class. It's like, well, no, no, no. We can't really just walk away from that. Like, the ending, and there's some weird shit here. Like, Rose shows up, and it's like, is she real or not? Is Raiden completely delusional by this point? Vamp, yeah. Vamp is in the background. Like, and there, closely for two there's, there's shit going on there, but I think the message that this game ends just ends on just doesn't work for me when you present me your bleak idea for the future i can't walk away from that thought and just be like well i just gotta like really commit myself to how into reading books i am you know what i'm saying like it, it's too simple it's too it's an attempt at a clean break from what you're doing that i just don't get down with i suppose i mean ultimately the ultimately the thing that's being said is that in the face of forces that are so incomprehensible like incomprehensibly bigger and more powerful than you one of the only things that you can do in reaction to that is to um, live authentically right and and that it's certainly a little trite but it rings true um i think to a certain extent i i wish that it wasn't maybe if there's one thing I actually think is is a bit of a detriment to the end of, of the game is like the way in which Snake really becomes um, a mouthpiece for 
the author <laughs> um, way more explicitly than maybe he ever has. I mean, we have this in, in the first Metal Gear Solid where there's a cutscene near the end and it's like, it's Naomi just talking about like, you're not tied to your genes, man. There's like, um, and almost, I almost find that a really interesting, like, expression of a lack of trust in the player because if you've gotten this far, hopefully you already get it. You don't need Snake to spell it out to you again, but I don't know, maybe some folks do. Clearly some folks yeah. do. Yeah, I mean, I do like a, a line that I did love was uh, Snake says, you know, it's it's obvious, but Snake says we need to let our children read about our sad and mystery, messy history by its light. Uh, you know, which is another I, kind of thing of like, hey man, you can't you can't live in this country without I interacting like with its bad history. Um, and I, I just I want to say like aesthetically, I loved this part both because the the live footage of New York mirrors the nature footage of alaska in this really interesting way where like the at the end of mgs1 you're seeing like polar bears and seals and wolves and here you're seeing like people walk around new york and it is kind of like our constructed world can be beautiful too if we if we allow it to be there are cathedrals everywhere if you have eyes to see um the the fact that it is playing like jazz piano really just felt very targeted at me that like York. i end so many of my own videos with like jazz piano and i think it is such this you know it is a quintessentially american style of music i think the kind of like all of the the feeling that is in jazz and the history that you can see there really really works and then in the cutscene parts the fact that that snake and raiden are just standing there being cartoon characters while everywhere else around them are, like, normal-looking people just walking to their jobs really makes it feel dreamlike in this way that, again, feels like it's acknowledging kind of how artificial a video game is when compared to the real world. I, and so it's just, like, you know, from from an artistic perspective, it was really hitting on all points for me. I also think Can't Say Goodbye to Yesterday is just kind of a sweet little song. Maybe a little, it is. maybe a little on the nose, a little bit. There's a there's a certain degree in which like this game is very much like ah New York baby, um, which is true. I love New York, but uh, yeah, I I think it earns you know. it. Yeah, it's fine. Um, there are a million more things that we could uh, say about this game, but we do need to wrap up here. Uh, Harper, thank you so much for coming on, lending us your your years of experience thinking and writing about this game. You're always you're always so kind about my work and i i, I must it say was I a think, big influence on me i think my work is very messy <laughs> i think i think That's my fine. book is so very is messy game. <laughs> um uh, but i i don't know metal gear is messy so maybe that's okay um I, it was uh we'll, we'll put a link to your writing here uh check out double fine check out psych odyssey uh i'm sure the studio will also be doing fun things in the future that we will be able to talk about um but until then this has been Something Rotten, talking about Metal Gear Solid 2. Uh, my name is Jacob Geller for Blake Hester. Turn the game console off right now! And by the way, the Patriots had died 100 years before the events of this game, and that's the final reveal at the yeah, end. Yeah, the they're all dead. So, so just keep that dead. in mind, listeners. Bye! <laughs> kind of snuck that in there the way the credits did.